seated. And as you're uh, taking your seat, if you would turn with me to Jonah chapter 1, the passage for this morning as we read together. Jonah chapter 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come. Let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us, on whose account has this evil come upon us? What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea that the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Well, have you ever met someone famous or been to an event and then tried to describe it afterward? So a friend or a family member asks, how was it? What was it like? What's he like? And then you have the job of trying to describe how to lift up a stool. How to describe something just too amazing. So often we we just say, you just had to be there, right? I remember there was this music group that I loved growing up, and I'd heard them in concert a few times. And when I heard they were going to be in McLean five or so years ago, I got some of my friends to go along. They weren't nearly as excited as I was, but they were happy to spend time together. They humored me because I kept saying how great it would be, and they're like, okay, yeah, that'd be good. But I just didn't describe it well enough, I guess. But I was justified. 
After the, the concert, there were CDs bought by my friends. They talked about it all the way home. They just guess they had to experience it for themselves, right? I think we can often ask those same questions about God. What's he like? Today, we come to the Old Testament book of Jonah where we see a clear picture of what God is like and we become better at describing his character to others. So Lord willing, over the next several weeks, we'll be studying this book of Jonah. Jonah was a prophet in Israel in the 8th century BC, roughly 150 years after the reign of King Solomon. The nation of Israel had already been divided into northern and southern kingdoms, and Jonah ministered in the north. And this story, unlike other stories in Scripture, is one with which most of us are familiar. So even if you're here this morning, you haven't read the Bible much. You know a little bit about Jonah, I presume. There's this prophet, there's this whale. However, this morning, let's approach the story not merely to see Jonah and a fish. So the great British pastor in the early 1900s, G. Campbell Morgan, put it this way, men have been looking so hard at the great fish that they have failed to see the great God. So this morning, let's see three truths about the main character of this story, and that is God himself. First, let's see God the just judge. Second, God the relentless pursuer. And third, God the powerful creator. First, God the just judge. Verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Nineveh was a prominent city in Assyria, a nation close to the northern kingdom of Israel. We'll see more about Nineveh in the weeks to come, Lord willing. But for now, I want us to stop and notice what God is doing to Jonah here, what he's saying. He's commanding his prophet to go proclaim judgment against a people for their sin because their sin has come up before him. And so right off the bat here, we come face to face with a God of justice. Evil is no gray area for God. He sees in black and white. So as we look around the world this morning, we read the headlines when we get up. We see all sorts of good and bad. And, and some of those things are clear. But other things present ethical dilemmas and issues of conscience. And we see political parties wrestling over power and justice. And those divisions are, uh, are among us even as a church this morning. We will disagree on some of those issues. We have different opinions and we disagree because we simply just can't understand everything. So I think we can often find ourselves puzzled and frightened. But let's be reminded here, church, that God is not like us. He's not perplexed by the issues of the fallen world. He's not afraid of what might happen. He knows the end from the beginning. He knows the sin of Nineveh and it's become a stench to him. He knows them inside and out and he calls his prophet to go speak against them. God is a God who doesn't mince words when it comes to matters of justice. No evil deed will go unpunished. So what does Jonah do? In verse 3, he, we read that he got up and he arose. And if you've read other passages of scripture about God sending words to prophets, you would expect this. They get up and rise. But what comes next is such a surprise. I mean, Isaiah and Jeremiah did what the Lord said when he called them. Elijah and Moses did, and Moses eventually, right, after getting over his whole speech problem. But verse 3 is a jarring turn of events for anyone familiar with Old Testament prophecy. Jonah rose, good, 
to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He hears the word of the Lord, he receives his marching orders, and he turns tail and runs. We aren't exactly sure where Tarshish was at the time, but most scholars guess that it was somewhere in modern-day Spain. And in Jonah's day, that would have been the outer reaches of the world. So Jonah's here, he's, he's hearing a command to go to Nineveh, and he's saying, no, I'm going to go in the opposite direction, and I'm actually not going to go just a few towns over. I'm going to go to as far as a boat will take me. Again, we'll see in coming chapters why Jonah's running, but we're not told here. We're just told that he's disobeying. He's fleeing his assignment from God. As one author puts it, his action is nothing less than open rebellion against God's sovereignty. So in verse 3, we find him going down to Joppa and catching a boat. He pays the fare. He embarks. And notice how he goes down to Joppa and down into the boat. He's just going down, down, far, far, as just as far away from God's orders as he can. And what we begin to see here is something I think we can fail to remember as Christians. God's justice and anger at sin is not only pointed at obvious sinners. God's not just out to get ISIS, though they certainly deserve his wrath. He's not only out to get the criminal or the embezzler or the abuser. He's not only out to get uh, someone we think is just a horrendous, scandalous sinner. God is a just judge against all sin. He's not only going to execute justice on Nineveh, but he's going to execute justice on his own prophet. My friend, if, if you're here today and you come well put together, you've got your life under control, you've put your best image forward to us and on Facebook this morning, no one can fault you for scandalous sin, just remember, God sees your heart. Your performance and external appearance won't fool him. He's not only a just judge, he's a He's a thorough judge. He made you. He knows you. There's no getting out from under his judgment, and that includes me, friends. If you knew the thoughts of my heart, you would be repelled by them. And so in response to my heart, God says, Jacob's evil has come up before me. It's a stench to him. And your sin is the same. We all have sinned against God. He's not merely the judge of the obviously wicked. He's the judge of the whole world. It's useless to try to run from him. And that's the second thing we see about God in this chapter. He's the just judge. He's the relentless pursuer. I love the contrast between verses 2 and 4. Look there, verse 2. But Jonah, verse 4, but the Lord. God comes and he hurls a great wind upon the sea, a, a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatens to break up. This is not just any storm. This is a storm engineered by God himself on purpose. He's pursuing his rebellious prophet. I think of Psalm 139 where David writes, where shall I go from your spirit, right? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. Jonah's finding this out, isn't he? There's no way to avoid God. So the ship is about to break up and crumble. And in verse 5, the sailors are freaked out. And they take two different actions to fight the storm, right? One spiritual and one physical. So first, they cry out to their gods for salvation. And then they begin the necessary work of throwing overboard any excess weight so the ship won't sink in the waves. 
You see the other juxtaposition here. God is hurling the storm on the sea, and they're hurling their equipment back at God in the sea. Someone's going to win this hurling battle. And we find out God cannot be stopped. He's coming after Jonah. And where's Jonah? It's another shock in a passage full of surprises. Jonah's in the belly of the ship, fast asleep. He's safe. He's out of danger. He's on a ship for Pete's sake. He won't need to follow God's command after all. Oh, how he's underestimated God the relentless pursuer. So in verse 6, the captain comes down into the ship and starts to yell at Jonah. What are you doing? And in a strange irony, he uses the same command Jonah had ignored from God in verse 2. You see that? The same word, arise. Call out to your God. That's the exact opposite thing Jonah wants to do right now. That's what he's trying not to do at all costs. He's going to Tarshish to avoid this. But God has pursued him out to sea and he's confronted him in his rebellion. The sailors are getting more and more afraid. Their gods don't seem to be listening. They're hoping one of them would give a thought to them so they wouldn't die. And so they decide there in verse 7 to cast lots to try and figure out who's brought the storm upon them. So casting lots was a familiar way of discerning something inexplicable. And so what have they got to lose now? You know, I don't know if the lots would have took, you know, if they were getting blown away by the wind. Uh, But they gather up these lots and the lot falls to Jonah. And again, he's got power and sovereignty in his pursuit. He's thrown the storm on the sea, and he controls even the smallest detail of a lot being cast. Proverbs 16 reminds us that the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. God's in control. Not Jonah, not the captain, not even the storm. God's behind all of this as the grand conductor of this chaotic symphony. And friend, lest you start to believe God is just some big cosmic bully here, let me remind you, God's perfect. He's not only the just judge, but he's the good judge. He knows the best plan for Nineveh. He knows the best plan for Jonah. And so as he pursues Jonah, remember, he's pursuing what's best for Jonah. One pastor says it this way, when we rebel against God's clear instruction and purpose for us, he can bring, not to add, probably will bring, a veritable storm into our lives. To reject God's purpose is to reject our best purpose. You see, sin in each of our lives is exactly that. It's rejection of God's purpose rebellion against his intent. And that rebellion will always lead to our misery. Any purpose outside of God, the creator's purpose, will end in despair for you. I can promise you that. Jonah could promise you that because he's tried it and he's failed terribly. Friend, are you trying to rebel against God this morning? Are you trying to run Christian, is there a sin in your life that God has just mercifully been prodding and pointing out to you repeatedly through your spouse or your friends or your Bible reading? Just haven't taken the step to humble yourself and repent of it. I mean, just the cost of repentance seems too high. 
sacrifice too much. Dear brother and sister, learn a lesson from Jonah. You'll never beat God. It's worthless striving against him. You'll you'll never be able to hide from him. Your sin will find you out sooner or later. And so don't make it later. Turn to him now. Why, Why miss the incredible joy of fellowship with your loving God while you just miserably grit your teeth in rebellion? So God catches up with Jonah. I mean, he's never really been behind. He knew all along how this story would play out. And now Jonah is discovered. He can't escape God's justice. So there in verse 8, the sailors begin to interrogate Jonah. And I think we can often read this in a kind of the VeggieTales version and just kind of see like, like a good game of go fish going. But like, remember, this is like, this ship's about to break. The, the gale force winds are howling. I don't even know how they're talking, but that's kind of the, the re- repeated questions. They're just shooting at Jonah here because they are at the end of their rope. They're interrogating him, and he responds, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. He comes clean. There is no use to trying to defend himself anymore against God. Uh, the sailors get even more afraid when they realize that they're, they're battling the God of Israel, Yahweh. Uh, it was before we saw their fear, and that was mostly because of the storm. They, they weren't sure what was happening, but now they're just really terrified, exceedingly terrified, because now they know that it's God who's bearing down on the ship. It's the God who made the sea in the first place, and it's the God who has the only power to still it. God is the just judge. God is the relentless pursuer. Finally, God is the powerful creator. So the sailors, again, are at the end of their ropes. They don't know what to do. So in verse 11, they ask Jonah. I mean, he knows God. He's apparently his prophet, even though he's a bad one. He must know the way that they can appease the Lord. So the storm is intensifying. God, the creator, seems to be upping the ante. We read there that the waves are growing more and more tempestuous. So Jonah needs to to know what to to be done, and he does. He realizes his guilt before God, and and this is his solution. Just more hurling. Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. So just as they had hurled the cargo, now Jonah says, make me one of the cargo items. Cast me into the raging waves. we find that the men aren't willing to go to that extreme yet. So they just start rowing harder. And I think we can read that and be like, oh, they're just being nice to Jonah. And I don't think so. I think they're really afraid of God. And they're thinking about, if he's their, Jonah's the prophet here and we kill him, what's that going to mean for us? Maybe we can just row back to land and just send Jonah to Nineveh. But as we've seen throughout the, the, the chapter, and we'll see throughout the book, you just can't defy the just judge. You can't outrun the relentless pursuer, and you certainly can't strong-arm the powerful creator. You can't fight God and win. If you follow sports at all, you may have heard about the upcoming boxing match between Conor McGregor and Floyd Mayweather. So Mayweather is a seasoned boxer. I think he's undefeated. Is that right? I think he is. Almost undefeated if he isn't. And McGregor, though he's an excellent athlete in other sports, is a Newcomer to boxing. So many pundits think this is going to be a runaway win for Mayweather, right? 
won't be really much of a contest. But some people like to like throw a little wrench in the wheel and say, ah, I, think there, I think there could be an upset here. Nobody has conclusive evidence for what will happen. And there's still a snowball's chance. Something crazy will happen and there will be an upset, right? We saw one last night. I really don't follow boxing that much. Sorry, I just, for some reason, it's all over now. Church, the reason I bring that up is because when we see, and as we see in this chapter, a match set between God and man, there's no chance for an upset. God always wins. So the sailors are beginning to realize this, and in verse 14, they cry out to God for mercy. Oh, Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O oh Lord, have done as it pleased you. These sailors, these pagan sailors, are developing some good theology. This is a great proclamation of the truth about God that we've been thinking about all morning. God is sovereign. He's in complete control. He judges, he pursues, and he creates as it pleases him. I love the verse Corey read for us earlier from Psalm 115. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. What a contrast to those pitiful gods these men are crying out to. There's only one God in control of the storm. So the men in verse 15, they haul Jonah over and cast him into the sea. And immediately the storm ceases. It might remind us of the time Jesus would wake up from years, centuries, from sleep centuries later and stand in a storm and say, peace be still, like Lee read for us earlier. God has all authority. He's the powerful creator. And so as Jonah's rebellion is finally dealt with, God causes the storm to cease. And the men just fear him when they see this. Much like the disciples feared Jesus in Mark 4. And they offer sacrifices. They make vows. As one commentator writes, the fury of the storm, an eloquent symbol of God's anger, subsides now that God's will is done. Verse 17 is really the beginning of chapter 2 in the Hebrew, I believe. So we'll be considering that next week. But in verses 1 through 16, what have we seen about God in this chapter? And that's been the point. We haven't focused as much on Jonah as we focused on the main character here, and that is God himself. How, how might we better answer the question, what's God like? Well, friend, remember those three things. God is the just judge. God is the relentless pursuer. God is the powerful creator. Church, what a magnificent God we have. I mean, we see here, in this chaotic passage, just so much swirling strife. There's peace in verses 1 and 2. And then there's no peace until when? Until verse 15. They picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Why verse 15? Well, because, friends, in verse 15, sin is dealt with. God the judge is satisfied. Justice is done. Church, hear this. There can only be peace. 
There can only be worldwide peace. There can only be personal peace when sin is dealt with. Jonah did not get away with his rebellion, and friend, neither will you. Neither will I. God will pursue justice until it's done because he's good. And in our sin, that news is not good. God is good. His justice is good. And we're not. We cannot escape his judgment. We're destined to appear in the courtroom of God with no defense. So the question that Jonah 1 poses to us this morning, to each of us, is this. What are you going to do with your sin? You obviously can't hide it. How are you going to deal with it? Maybe you have tried to justify it, explain it away, right? It's, it's the fault of your family, your circumstances, your environment. And certainly there's, there's fault in that, in that. But are you going to justify away your sin just based on that? Or are you going to say, you know, it's just, it's just not that bad. I mean, have you seen Jeff? Maybe you're going to try to embrace your sin scoff in the face of God and continue to delight in things that he condemns. I think that's probably the most honest option. Maybe you're going to try to ignore it, hoping that in the end Christianity will just end up a lie and God will just be accepting of everyone. Don't fool yourself, Christian, non-Christian. Sin is serious to God because justice is serious to God. The sins of your heart and my heart deserve the judgment of God. So what are you going to do with your sin? The wonderful thing about God is that his story doesn't end in Jonah 1. So as we continue in this book, if God wills and he tarries, we'll see that God doesn't only pursue us relentlessly to accomplish justice, but he pursues us relentlessly to shower us with grace. Each of us is or has been like Jonah in verse 3, running away from God. But for every Christian here today, the Lord has pursued you in love. And like Jonah, you and I have been arrested in a hell-bound race by a gracious God. How? Well, see, the storm of God's judgment here in Jonah 1, how is it stilled? It was stilled when Jonah was cast into the waves for his sin. And friends, 800 years later, an even greater storm of God's judgment against all sin in the world was stilled after he judged his one and only son. Jesus was thrown into the storm of God's judgment, though he had done no wrong. He was the innocent man that the sailors were praying about in verse 14. He was the perfect Jonah, the perfect sacrifice to atone for sin. And so when he underwent the storm of God's wrath, taking God's fury in our place, God's justice only then was satisfied. In the words of that great hymn, and on the cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied for every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ, I live. 
when Jesus died, he took all the sin of guilt and guilt of everyone who would trust in him. He took God's judgment in our place. So friend, if, if you're here and you're not a Christian, you will stand before God, the judge. But how will you stand? Will you stand alone in your sin with no defense? Or will you stand with your attorney, your advocate by your side, with the Lord Jesus himself shouting out after your verdict is given, do not judge this man, my father. I've been judged already for his sin. He goes free. Friend, come trust in Christ and be saved. And church, brothers and sisters in Christ, as we continue on in this study in the book of Jonah, we'll see that the, the main things we've hit on here in chapter one are the main things we're going to be hitting on over and over again. This is the scope of this whole story. God is a God of both unrelenting judgment and unrelenting mercy. That's who he is. So Christian, I don't know how you come to this text this morning, but I plead with you, come, come to this God afresh this morning. Don't hide your sin anymore. Bring it to the light and, and just be overwhelmed yet again by the grace and mercy of the God who has pursued you. You are not worthless. You are not unloved. The God who's created you is pursuing you. So find a trusted brother and sister in the church and this afternoon or this week, call them up and explain to them what's going on in your heart and allow them to pray for you and, and rejoice in the freedom that comes from relenting to the unrelenting God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for not leaving us in our sin. But for each of us here who have united ourselves to Christ in the gospel, you have run after us. You've opened our eyes to see the beauty and glory of the cross of our Savior. And so we confess we cannot know life apart from this Christ. We cannot know joy apart from this Jesus. We may try and try to build up defenses for our sin, knowing all along that nothing can escape your justice. So Lord, help us to stop that striving and strive instead after our beautiful Savior. Tear down our walls. There is now no condemnation left for us because Jesus has taken it all. So please, Lord, lead us not into the, the, lead us not into the temptation to run from you like Jonah. But in our struggle with sin and your commands, in our sufferings, in our fears, in our doubts, help us run to you, listen to you, seek after you. Thank you that you are the just judge, the relentless pursuer, and the powerful creator. And thank you that you've not only made us once, but you've remade us in Christ. So be with us and be working in us for our joy and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.